a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Gee, I wonder if we have anything to talk about today. Yeah. I have... uh, I've had a lot of time to think and uh, mull things over over the weekend, did some traveling, uh, went to Idaho, visited my mom. We threw a little surprise party for her, uh, just, you know, a pre-birthday surprise party. My sisters were in town, and so it was kind of nice. I I actually was unplugged from the Matrix for the better part of the weekend, and I'm glad. I plugged back in this morning, and it was like trying to drink from a fire hose, trying to get all the uh, information. So, uh, so what was going on while uh, while I was off? Uh, you know, just enjoying time with family. And it turns out there was a lot. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, the show, by the way, brought to you in part by Alta Bank Mortgage, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And I would encourage you, if you have need of a new mortgage or a, a refinance of your existing mortgage, or If you have need for commercial insurance and you are just not sure if you've got everything covered that you need covered, go to the links, which you will find in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and there under sponsors, you'll find everything you need to get in touch with these guys and tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. So, where do we begin? I think I'm just going to start by telling you a little bit about my weekend. And from there, we'll talk about current events. But current events played a role, as you might expect. I I spent some time uh, visiting with uh, my sister and her husband, who is uh, an immigrant from Turkey. His name is Savas. Wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to take him around and kind of show him some of the sites in southern Idaho. Now, in January, that may not sound like a very pleasant thing to do. Well, that's mud, and that's, you know... uh, rocks and (laughs) there's some snow and there's ice on the river but actually truth be told uh, southern idaho particularly the twin falls magic valley area very very beautiful any time of year and of course there's just an abundance of wildlife so uh savas and my son and i we just kind of went around and visited some of the sites and i got a chance to visit with this guy who is in the process of becoming an american citizen And, of course, I wanted to know about him. There's, there was a little bit of a language barrier, uh, kind of tough to, to, uh, to communicate freely. He understands English if it's spoken slowly and clearly, but uh, his, his own grasp of English is <clears throat> it's still pretty new. But I, I wanted to know about, you know, what do you think of Turkey? Well, tell me about your country. Tell me, you know, about uh, your homeland. And, of course, he, he was showing me pictures on his phone of, you know, these incredible historical sites. And I, I don't think that much about Turkey, but if, if you think about modern-day Turkey, a lot of the places there that we know by modern names, you know by other names when you read the Bible and when you look at, uh, at history. It's just this incredible confluence of Jewish, Islamic, and Christian faiths that uh, all center in that area. It's, it's amazing. And, and this guy's an architect, too, so it was, it was very cool to, to, to see some of the incredible architecture 
of, of bygone, uh, you know, eras and ages. And it was, what surprised me, though, when I asked him, you know, well, what, what can you tell me about your country? Um, I asked him, you know, do, do you miss it? Yes, you know. I asked him, what, to, what brings you, you know, here? And it was hard for him to, to answer, but in a nutshell, he explained to me that uh, they are living under an intolerable political system. Now, you can imagine my ears kind of ping, perk up. Wait a minute. <laughs> Tell me more. And he just explained that uh, they, their, their government has people in it who want to force the entire populace to live, dress, and think a certain way. In this case, it's a, it's a secular country that has a fundamentalist regime and that is uh, that is really really difficult and so he is uh, you know he is working very hard to become an american citizen and uh, and i got to tell you trying to to show him you know around and and talk with him about my own country um it it really puts some things into perspective for me one of the things is you know we uh, there there are some very deep seated hatreds between the turkish people and and others I mentioned that uh, we had had uh, Saudi Arabian students living with our family. Wow, the reaction. Ooh, to mention anything Arabic. Um, just really, he was, uh, I mean, this is a really gentle guy. He's not, he's not uh, a blowhard by any means. But, uh, wow, he was, he was just immediately, <sighs> you know, I've heard it's like the French will spit when they're disgusted. It was, it was almost that kind of a reaction. And I thought about uh, that's that is where we are are approaching. That's a that's a point we're coming to here in America. And it was good. We had a good chance to talk. I hope I hope I was able to, in some way, you know, convey, uh, despite what's happening now, despite the flaws that we see that have come to the surface, and some of the the bad decisions made for generations now that are that are finally coming home to roost. I still believe in the promise of this country. I still believe this is a land that is blessed. And I mean, has been protected and blessed and in some cases favored by God for a purpose that, that is, is beyond just, you know, political control, but uh, because, because God is the one who, who blessed it. Now I'm, I'm putting some cards on the table here. Some people are going to be uncomfortable with this, but uh, the bottom line is this. I believe that uh, that promise still exists. I believe that um, despite what's going on, you know, there, there, I think there is divine importance to, to living on this land. And I think it comes with a responsibility that, uh, you know, if, if the people would turn to God, if they would acknowledge God, if they would serve God, they would find that they are protected, they are prospered, and they are blessed. But I believe there's another side to that promise, and that is if, if we turn away from God, in fact, if we actively fight against God, work to p- keep people from believing in God. Public school system, I'm looking in your direction. <laughs> if we, Hollywood, you know, if, if, we, if we do what we can to do everything to pro- provide this division between the divine and, and the people, that those promises will not be be kept. In fact, they'll be taken away. You'll lose your security. You'll lose your prosperity. Maybe even lose your right to live on this land. 
And so I'm looking beyond just political solutions. You know, it's uh, the, 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 the thing that took place at the Capitol. I'm not going to call it a riot. It was definitely unrest and there was damage that was done. But I don't know. My idea of what constitutes a riot has changed a lot in the last year. And that's probably from watching month after month after month after month of riots taking place in which people were being shot, stabbed, beaten, businesses looted, businesses burned, people accosted on the freeways, dragged from their cars, beaten within an inch of their lives. That sounds like a riot to me. Now, rowdy protesters going to the seat of their government to express displeasure, and a tiny, tiny proportion of them getting rowdy enough to push past the armed guards and actually enter that building. Yeah, it's it's definitely civil disobedience. And yes, there was some destruction that was done. Hundreds of dollars from the sounds of it. But to call that a riot, to me, seems like a real uh, loose application of the term. And in fact, as we're seeing and we're going to discuss... Um, the, the, the terminology that's being used is, well, that was domestic terrorism. So if you think the Patriot Act has brought us uh, some pretty ugly baggage since uh, September 11th, just wait. <laughs> There's, there is some more ugliness lurking in the, in the wings, and, and it's being pushed hard and fast. In fact, when we come back from the break here in a few moments, we're going to talk about um, what we have seen happen just in the last 72 hours that is almost unprecedented in terms of if you are pushing for absolute control, and I'm talking totalitarian control, one of the first things you're going to have to do is you've got to get a lid on communication. You've got to get a lid on the transfer of information. People cannot be free to speak and communicate and organize. And we've seen exactly that uh, taking place with uh, the incredible deplatforming, the great purge of 2021 that has taken place just in the last couple of days. It's uh, it's remarkable. It's a little bit alarming. And I can't imagine why. I guess it hasn't affected me because I'm just not uh, well-known enough or famous enough or considered dangerous enough. Well, I'm going to take advantage of that while I still can. So I have some very dangerous information to share with you. Just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. So I have a question, and it's a loaded question, but I want you to consider this. Did you find yourself in any awkward conversations over the weekend? I'm betting that there are quite a few people nodding their heads going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it was uncomfortable. I, uh... I, hadn't, I haven't seen my, my younger sister for quite a while. It's been well over a year. We don't get to see each other that often. She lives in Columbus, Ohio. And so what we don't, I don't get out that way. She comes back home and visits occasionally. But uh, to say that we are on different parts of the political spectrum would be a bit of an understatement. It'd be like, you know, the, uh, the Arctic can be a little cold this time of year. Yeah, big understatement. But uh, I, I know that she is someone who has absolutely detested Donald Trump 
And it's, uh, you know, to the, to the point where, you know, I've, I've been asked, you know, seriously, well, how can you sleep at night knowing that that racist is in the White House? And my answer, which I don't think satisfied her, was, you know, I don't let any president weigh that heavily on my mind. You know, I'm, I'm not letting him live rent-free in my head because he's not important enough to live rent-free in my head. I have better things to think about. Well, it seriously, within the first, like, two sentences of conversation when we had caught up, one of the first things she asked me, so, are you happy? Are you happy with your vote for Trump? Are you happy with what it's brought? And I was just like, wow. I didn't even get an invite for the struggle session, and here's one starting, you know, right to, right here at the, the kitchen table. Um, and I, I have to give credit to my sister for for. For, look, she spoke her mind. Um, I told her this. My first re- response was, look, I'm not accepting guilt. So let's go ahead and take this topic off the table and let's just have a good time in, in the few hours that we're going to be able to, to hang out. And it took a few tries and it took effort on both of our parts not to want to have the last word. But but eventually, you know, we we stopped trying to discuss or try, stopped trying to not discuss it. She got up and hugged me and said, look, I love you more than I hate Donald Trump. And I hugged her and said, and I love you more than I need to be right about this. But it was just a great illustration to me that this is, we're dealing with with not just a couple of different, uh, you know, uh, political persuasions here. We're dealing with totally different realities and my sister is very much on the you know social justice bandwagon. Everything is racist. Everything that uh, that uh, she is crusading to fix. If you're not a part of that, then you are part of the problem. And I have a, I have trouble with that. I think we all have our own crusades, but I don't think we ever have the right to go and condemn other people for not being a part of our crusade. I think back to the piece I shared from Brian Kaplan a, about a week ago. My hands are clean. Rather than trying to shame people into action, I, I think the better approach is, you know, if, if you have a cause that is worthwhile, it's to inspire them. Can you see that there's a problem here? And if they say, well, I do see that there's a problem, wouldn't you like to be a hero? Wouldn't you like to be one of the people who helps to, to, to solve this problem? That's a much different approach than, well, you know, You've never been in, in, in a place where racism exists. You're a privileged white male. You, know, you get the picture. But it was interesting to me how difficult it was to, to get around that initially. Once we took it off the table, everything was great. And I hope other people you know, can, can learn from that. If, if you have reached the point in a relationship where you can't say, Ugh, this topic is of less importance than, than my relationship with the person that I'm talking to, um, I hope you can get there because where we are headed right now is, is pretty scary. And I don't know how exactly to approach this. I mean, I'm open to, to suggestions, but when, when you literally have half the population or at least half the voting population looking at the other half and thinking they are completely detached from reality or thinking not only are they detached from reality, but they deserve to be in camps. How do you bridge a gap like that? And by the way, there are, there are extremes on both the left and the right. 
that feel that way. I had a caller Friday. You know, I, I had a lot of comments, actually a lot of compliments on Friday's show saying, I, I really appreciated your take. And, and I'm telling you, I, I, don't, I don't have the answers. I'm just trying to look at it from as principled a point of view as I can, um, not to contribute to the problem. But I did have a caller who called in and uh, just vented, well, I think this is, uh, you know, what happened to the Capitol? We need more of that. We need more of that anger. We need to, we need to be lashing out. And I get his frustration, but I totally disagree with the method. We're going to talk more about why that method is actually playing into the hands of people who would very much like to, um, I'm going to use the word enslave us, even though that may trigger a few people to hear it. But if you've been paying attention to the the lockdowns and the purges of, of social media, you've got to have the sense that, woo, something is up here. In fact, I'll back up a little bit more. Um, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she wants Trump removed. Never mind that the guy's term is up in something like nine days. He's too dangerous. And, of course, social media, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, wow, um, Amazon deplatformed Parler. It is incredible the efforts that some are going to. And it's not just people within government. It's, it's some of their, uh, their big tech allies. We've talked about this before. How did big tech become so, so all pervasive? So, so, uh, how did they get so big? And the truth is, at some point, they climbed into bed with government. And this has been understood for a long time. They've been sharing data with government for a long time, particularly the national security part of government. But now, those big tech allies are doing everything they can to silence political speech that is not approved by the political class. And I mean, you, you look at the language that's being used. I can now call him this. President-elect Biden uh, has been using the term domestic terrorism. The press has been hammering that home immediately. The, the, this is the biggest misinformation campaign that I would guess most of us have seen within our lifetimes. It's amazing. And, and it should lead you to wonder, and rather than cowering in fear, you should be wondering, okay, what is this supposed to be leading to? I mean, you know, the, the, what took place at the Capitol, the so-called riot, is being equated with it was a coup. It was an attempt to overthrow the United States of America. Oh, and by the way, have you noticed how the political class suddenly has this incredible reverence for the Constitution and for, for our government. And, and, and they keep throwing the word democracy out there like that is the be-all, end-all. The American Republic's in some pretty deep trouble. But this, this feigned concern for constitutional protocol and, and property, it's, it rings so false when you consider what they do and what they have been doing day after day for decades in which the Constitution was seen as a hindrance at best, and something that needed to be done away with at worst. Well, I think that's, that's the direction that we're moving. And right now, you have roughly half the country very actively working or supporting silencing the other half. Tell me how something like that can't lead to greater conflict. I don't know what, uh, you know, the First Amendment is, is one of the first ones that's, that's under serious attack. The Second Amendment can't be far behind I know where my line in the sand is. Do you know where yours is? 
and I'm really sorry. Here, this this feels like I'm I'm getting you know to the fiery rhetoric. All right, he's going to jump up on the soapbox and really start going for it. But you can't invoke morality and you can't invoke reason when you are dealing with totalitarian thinking. It's just not going to happen. Now, I do have something I'm going to share with you the other side of the break. If politicians are very serious about uh, preventing another attack on the Capitol, Robert E. Wright has eight very solid ideas how they could do it, but it involves change on their part more so than on our part. I'll share that coming up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I feel like I am just walking this razor's edge between being calm and reasonable and, you know, providing reassurance and a voice of steadiness to the people and just flat out flying off the handle. I did kind of snap at a friend on Facebook, and and I'm feeling a little bit bad about this. This is one of the reasons why I I just more or less unplugged from social media because it was like, ah, I just, I don't think I can, I don't think I can subject myself to some of the, uh, the thinking and the emoting that is going on without responding. And this one in particular, this friend, uh, she has become very, very woke in the last couple of years, posted something about, uh, you know, you you people who she's talking to Trump supporters or for that matter, anybody who uh, who is not standing with the the woke among us. And just it was like, well, think about what you've done. This is all your fault. You have brought this to pass. And I'm going to forgive you at some point. But for now, I think you just need to go to your room and think about what you've done. And now, if, if that, maybe that resonates with you and you're like, oh, well, gee, I should. Gee, where do I sit down? What, what dunce cap do you want me to put on? Do I face the corner? Okay. Uh, you know, some people may respond like that. I don't. My response was, hey, I'm not accepting invites to struggle sessions just yet. Maybe when you get around to putting us in camps, I'll actually have time for something like that. I know, snarky, harsh. And yet I've reached the point where I don't know that I have the luxury to be polite I'm not the kind of guy who goes around backhanding people across the face, literally or rhetorically. But how do you snap through? How do you get through that kind of a mental blockade? I I see us headed for some really dangerous, dangerous water. Now, I want to share with you this article from Robert Wright. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, thwarting the next attack on the Capitol. He brings up an attack on the Capitol that was literally an attack on the Capitol. 30 shots rang out in the U.S. Capitol around 2.30 p.m. Bullets struck five House reps, all of whom survived, thanks in part to the response, the valiant response of House pages. Now, if he says, if that sounds different from the news accounts of January 6, 2021, it's because the event that he briefly describes is one that occurred March 1, 1954, when four Puerto Rican nationalists fired the shots from the visitor's gallery while unfurling the Puerto Rican flag. He says the assailants were all eventually apprehended, tried, and convicted. They were serving long prison sentences, which were commuted by President Jimmy Carter in 1978 and 1979. 
Now, he says the three men and one woman who gave half their lives were heroes to Puerto Rican nationalists and anti-imperialists. But they were considered v- but uh, vile, failed assassins to those who wanted to maintain U.S. hegemony over the island it had taken from the Spanish Empire in, 19, in 1898. Importantly, he says, most of those who had given little thought to Puerto Rico's status and likely could not find the island on a map also deprecated the attack because of the level of violence unleashed. Now, of course, the, American, the, the people who some Americans still proudly called patriots were nothing more than nationalist rebels to the Tories. Had the Patriots lost the Revolutionary War, they would have at best suffered the same fate as Confederate Johnny Reb. George Washington would be remembered today as a scoundrel and an enslaver. His sidekick, Alexander Hamilton, would never have spawned a hit musical. Well, today, obviously, matters are no different. He says, if you think you'll gain from the actions that some group takes, you will tend to rationalize its tactics and call its members good names. If you think that group's actions will hurt you, then you tend to oppose it and its tactics and call its members bad names. Praise and blame, historians call it. One partisan's hero is another partisan's zero. And he says that's why it's so important for true supporters of law and order, like myself, to identify and reduce the causes of political violence before it becomes too late. Back in mid-March, Robert Wright predicted rebellions if lockdowns continued for too long and many mass demonstrations, some quite violent, occurred throughout 2020 in many nations, including our own. He also warned in December that trouble would ensue if the Supreme Court refused to hear the Texas election lawsuit. And here we are. If only the Capitol Police had heeded his warnings, they could have taken more effective precautions. Now, his point is it isn't terribly difficult, actually, to see trouble brewing. All it takes is a little theory and some empathy. Theory, like the one laid out by Eric Hoffer, suggests that frustration breeds violent protest. Frustration isn't measurable precisely, but if you listen to what people, real people, not TV pundits, say and think about how you would feel in a similar situation, then you start to get a sense for genuine frustration. He says many patriots, for example, felt that the British policymakers were unresponsive to their concerns about how imperial tax and monetary policies had led to the impoverishment and hence imprisonment of many colonists following the French and Indian War. They beseeched London elites not to tack the Stamp Act onto their many woes, but were met with disdain. They won that one with some violence and many threats, but the British soon piled on additional regulations. The colonists responded with remonstrances, uh, trade embargoes, and so forth. But after the Boston Massacre, Patriot propaganda, of course, and the mob insurrection against tea in Boston Harbor, British propaganda, violence soon escalated into a full-blown war. Now, his point here is, look, the, the Puerto Rican nationalists who attacked in 1954, they were also frustrated. That island had gained some de jure independence from Spain in 1897, just a year before the Yankee Empire invaded and claimed jurisdiction over it. It took over half a century for the United States to grant limited autonomy to Puerto Rico, a reform that that did not go far enough for nationalists who in October 1950 openly rebelled in several important towns and cities, including San Juan. Puerto Rican police and troops bolstered by U.S. military forces quelled the uprisings, which which resulted rather in scores of of casualties. On November 1st, two Puerto Rican nationalists attacked President Truman in the Blair House. That was his uh, temporary residence while the White House was being renovated. One law enforcement officer was killed in the attack, as was one of the attackers. The other was captured, convicted, and imprisoned. 
Unscathed in the attack, Truman supported a plebiscite on Puerto Rico's status, but crucially, independence literally was not on the ballot. Nationalists boycotted the election, which overwhelmingly endorsed Commonwealth status for the island. So from their perspective, the election had been stolen before it was ever held. Now you need to hear this next part very clearly. Robert E. Wright says none of that background excuses the 1954 attack, but it does explain why some nationalists were frustrated enough to resort to violence. And the same could be said of the small minority of peaceful protesters who attempted to overrun the White House in early June 2020. He says, as I then wrote, those calling for redistribution of resources away from police were rightly frustrated by continued state violence against poorer Americans, especially those of color, and offered a path toward reducing governmental power without encouraging criminal chaos. As for the events of 6 January, every politico lays blame on somebody else and moralizes instead of admitting their own role in causing, or at least not allaying, the frustrations that undergirded the attack. In fact, he says all federal politicians should resign and donate their entire net worths to the Treasury because they're all abject failures. But he says, I won't hold my breath on that. Okay, here's where he says, I have bad news. Much like my news that 2021 would not necessarily be 2020, things could get much, much worse. If you thought recent events were scary, imagine a million or more armed Americans storming the federal zone in D.C. and burning it to the ground regardless of upgraded security measures. That's not yet a prediction, and he says it's certainly not a wish, but the probability of such an event is palpably higher than it was just a year ago. So to reduce the probability of such horror, America needs real statesmen. That means leaders of any gender who seek to implement rational policies instead of engaging in constant partisan pandering. Those real leaders should not use the attack on the Capitol as an excuse to further erode civil liberties. In fact, they should encourage frustrated individuals to engage in peaceful protest, like burning effigies. That's more cathartic than mere virtue signaling via haberdashery or social media posts. They need to stop lying about COVID-19. Read the COVID-related posts on American Institute for Economic Research's website, and, and they can learn something. Number three, they need to lay bare the fact that most policy proposals redistribute resources from one group to another and encourage open debate about the trade-offs involved. Number four, focus policy on reducing frustration, even if that means cutting the power of corporate or party monopolies and duopolies, unions, and the government itself. Number five, chastise every media outlet that engages in partisan hyperbole and encourage the reestablishment of trusted nonpartisan news sources. Number six, chastise politicians who call for metaphorical wars on everything and anything and are constantly using martial words like fight when they really mean work on behalf of. That's just six of the eight suggestions he has. I'll let you look up the rest by checking out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This will be show notes for January 11th. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I want to thank you for joining me here on the show. And give a shout-out to the many different platforms where you can find this. I uh, I did a Google search the other day just, just to see out of curiosity. Is there anywhere that this thing is showing up that, uh, that I hadn't counted on? And I was surprised. I was surprised to see that, uh, yeah, somehow we're gaining some traction. Look, I don't aspire to be that dangerous person who has to be banned or, you know, otherwise deplatformed by, by Twitter or Facebook. So far, they have left uh, everything that I have posted alone. I better knock on wood when I say that. And I, I, don't, I don't know, it's, you know if that means, well, that's because you're being ineffective, Brian. That's why, they, that's why they haven't, you know, pulled the plug on you. I would hope it's because somewhere in the midst of whatever I'm doing wrong that I'm also getting some of this right. And more than anything, I am. I don't want to control other people. I don't want to impose a one-size-fits-all solution on everybody. If there's a solution that needs to be implemented as opposed to imposed, it's freedom. Let people choose. Let people pursue happiness as they best see fit. Anything that's peaceful should be on the table. Anything. It's just got to be peaceful. But unfortunately, we are at a point right now where people have, are, are feeling like an existential threat. I have to impose this. In fact, this is, this is the part that, that concerns me the most. It's not just that, well, I need you to do certain things. We're going to pass laws saying that you have to do this. It's what we are thinking. We're seriously in, in the, the midst of, of a move right now, just over the last few days, to outlaw certain political thought to make sure that anyone who questions the official truth about what our political system is doing must be punished, must be relegated to the margins. In the words of Orwell, they must be made an unperson. That is, that's a very totalitarian way of looking at things. I'm going to share a couple of excerpts here. This is from an article by Roger Kimball in American Greatness. The Virtue of the New Totalitarians. Subheadline, later ages are always surprised by the casual brutality of totalitarian regimes. What they neglect is the unshakable, though misguided, conviction of virtue that animates totalitarians. He asks the question, what was the most disturbing thing to happen in the last few days? Some say, well, it was the horrifying spectacle of the mob besieging and breaking into the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. And that was indeed disturbing, especially the pageant of wanton assaults on property in the seat of our government, and most of all, the images of Ashley Babbitt, the young woman who was shot and killed, apparently by law enforcement. But he says there's a lot we don't know about what happened that afternoon. But he says, I think Tucker Carlson was right about two essential things. Now he says, one, he believes President Trump bears some responsibility for what happened. He says he recklessly encouraged, as Carlson put it, his distraught supporters. Roger Kimball says, I should note, by the way, that I believe that the president's supporters are right to be distraught, not just because their guy lost. That's the nature of elections. One candidate wins, one loses. But so long as the election is fair and seem to be fair all is well, the loser and the loser's supporters may mutter, but they accept the results and go home. However, in the 2020 election, he says there were huge and, in his view, determinative irregularities. Had the votes, had the votes been fairly counted, he says, I believe Trump would have won. But they weren't. 
hence the anger among his supporters. The president should have appreciated their anger and acted accordingly. He also ought to have appreciated that by January, the game was over. There was nothing Mike Pence could have done that would have changed the outcome of the election. So he says, when Trump concluded his remarks to the crowd by encouraging them to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and go to the Capitol, he was playing with fire, and he ought to have discerned as much. But he says, I also believe that uh, that Carlson is correct when he says the president did not intend or foresee the mayhem that followed. As the transcript of his remarks shows, he encouraged the crowd to, quote, peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Why, that's incendiary. No, it's not. He ought to have known that more could transpire. A huge, fired-up crowd is a mob just waiting to happen, but Carlson was right. This was a political protest that got out of hand, not an insurrection or an act of domestic terrorism, as Joe Biden and others are quick to claim. Now, this double standard of outrage has been detailed by many commentators. It takes nothing away from the horror of the mob descending on the Capitol this week to point out that Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, Joe Biden, and their media mouthpieces were outrage-deficient when another mob assaulted the Supreme Court during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, or when Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters torched cities across the country this summer, or indeed, when there were riots in Washington following Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017. As commentator Howie Carr put it, some riots are more equal than others. Roger Kimball says, like Carr, he also condemns what happened at the Capitol last week, but he says, I wonder where all this outrage was among the chattering classes when the orgy of rioting, looting, arson, and murder was gripping the nation last summer. By the way, the Babylon Bee did have some of the best satire on this when they had the headline, Antifa accuses Trump supporters of cultural appropriation. Bam! Mic drop. (laughs) So when BLM rioters were burning cities and attacking police, Colin Kaepernick uh, publicly called for more violence. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, responded by making a $3 million contribution to one of Kaepernick's charities. Which brings me to my own candidate for the most disturbing thing to happen in the last several days, the apparently coordinated attack by big tech to destroy free speech. He says, on Friday we learned Twitter had banned the President of the United States from its platform. Facebook and other media quickly followed suit. General Mike Flynn and lawyer Sidney Powell were also deplatformed, as were several other prominent conservatives. But we now know that such actions are just the tip of the big tech iceberg. Again, Tucker Carlson zeroed in on the terrifying reality of our situation. It wasn't just that President Trump and some of his supporters were silenced. The entire media ecosphere went into overdrive to muzzle opinions with which they disagree. On Friday, Google announced it was excluding the app for the Twitter alternative, Parler, from its platform. Saturday night, Apple removed Parler from its app store. And as he writes this, he says Amazon announced that as of midnight last night, Parler's data would be removed from its servers. Why? Two reasons. First, because conservatives are flocking to Parler in their disgust with Twitter. So there is a commercial reason. But the second is pure politics. As Parler CEO John Matsey noted, Amazon, Google, and Apple purposefully did this as a coordinated effort, knowing our options would be limited and knowing this would inflict the most damage right as President Trump was banned from tech, the tech companies. What we're seeing, as, Tar, as Carlson pointed out in his conversation with journalist Glenn Greenwald, is the elevation of a tiny handful of tech oligarchs to a position of essentially untrammeled power to determine what we see, what we hear, and with whom we may communicate. No one elected them, 
but they are in many respects more powerful than any nation-state, unaccountable, and overwhelmingly representing a far-left point of view. So where does it stop? Not with the book publishing industry, Simon & Schuster just announced they've canceled Senator Josh Hawley's new book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, allegedly because he supported President Trump and exercised his legal right to debate allegations of voter fraud on the Senate floor. Hawley was quite right that Simon & Schuster's action was positively Orwellian. Simon & Schuster, he tweeted, is canceling my contract because I was representing my constituents, leading a debate on the Senate floor on voter integrity, which they now have decided to redefine as sedition. Let me be clear, this is not just a contract dispute. It's a direct assault on the First Amendment. Only approved speech can now be published. This is the left looking to cancel everyone they don't approve of. And he says, I admire Holly's spirit. I'll fight this cancel culture with everything I have. We'll see you in court. Roger L. Simon wasn't being hyperbolic when he suggested what we're seeing is the devolution of the United States into a one-party totalitarian state akin to communist China. It's not communism in the traditional sense. Marx wouldn't recognize it. Not that what he had on offer was any better. What we're witnessing is communism as a sort of paleo-virtue signaling. What China actually is, and where the United States is headed or has already arrived, is a form of oligarchic fascism. The capitalist market is fine as long as it's my capitalist market and you're a member of my party. Now, there's a lot more to this article, but I'm going to get to the chase here. Later ages are always surprised by the casual brutality of totalitarian regimes. What those innocent ages neglect is the unshakable, though misguided, conviction of virtue that animates those totalitarians. The historian John Keeks, writing about Robespierre in City Journal some years ago, hit the essential point. If we understand Robespierre, we understand that it is utterly useless to appeal to reason and morality in dealing with ideologues. For they are convinced that reason and morality are on their side and that their enemies are irrational and immoral simply because they are enemies. That is the position of conservatives in American culture today. Now, the question is, what do you and I do about it? I think the answer is a lot less political than most of us would suspect. We'll be talking about that in the other hour of the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.